zusammen. Good morning, everyone. It's been a real joy to be back among you this week. It's been a busy week. And like Jim, I echo his thanks for your kind hospitality. It's been good to catch up with uh, folks that I haven't seen for quite a while, meet some surprises along the way, as well as uh, see old friends that live here in the area. Count Nikolaus Ludwig von Zinzendorf was born into a noble family in Dresden in the year 1700. He was raised by his pietistic Lutheran grandmother in an atmosphere of Bible study, prayer, and hymn singing. He studied law to prepare for a diplomatic career, and at the end of his studies, he embarked on a European tour to get a look at the continent. And during his European tour, a couple of things happened that changed the course of his life. In the art museum, in, there's an, a city in Germany called Dusseldorf. And they have an art museum. And he visited the art museum and saw this painting called Behold the Man. And he read the inscription underneath the painting, which said, I have done this for you, what have you done for me? And Sinsendorf, as he was looking at the painting and reading the inscription, said, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. The second event happened a few years later. Some, he met a slave from, a freed slave from the West Indies in Copenhagen, Denmark, and the guy told of the terrible oppression of the black slaves in the West Indies. And the former slave was looking for someone who would go to the West Indies and preach the gospel to the slaves. His own brother and sister were still in the West Indies as slaves and suffering under the oppression. And he was hoping that someone would go and preach the gospel to them. And Zinzendorf caught a vision for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. About 75 miles east of Dresden is a little town called Hanhut. And I've had the privilege of visiting there. Zinzendorf founded the Hanhut com community in the early 1700s. And when he did, his mission's vision was paramount. However, in its first few years of existence, at the beginning of 1727, the community had 300 people, but it was racked with dissension, bickering, and strife. He had uh, opened, the home, opened the place up for religious refugees, really, and they came in with all sorts of different theological points of view, and they couldn't get along with each other. And he was so concerned about that that he moved to the community himself and spent time going from house to house, praying with the families, leading the men in Bible studies. And I imagine that as he engaged in the work of conflict resolution, he also encouraged people to take responsibility for their part in the conflict, to apologize for mistakes made, for evil words spoken, 
And he encouraged people to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. But above all, Zinzendorf and a few others in the community covenanted with one another to labor and pray for revival. And then in May, on May 12th, actually, revival came. Christians were aglow with new life and power. The dissension vanished and unbelievers were converted. And looking back to that day and, f- and the four glorious months that followed, Sinzendorf later recalled, the whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men. And this revival and healing in the community lit the flame of mission to the world. The theme of our missions conference this week is pray earnestly. We just sang a song about that. Jesus once told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray, to the, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Prayer, earnest, fervent prayer is an essential ingredient in evangelism and world missions. And heute Morgen, sorry, <laughs> this morning, uh, my, the big idea of my message is very simple, and it's not going to be news to anybody here. You've all heard it before, but I hope I can encourage you to continue to pray earnestly, and perhaps if the fires have waned, you might find a little motivation to begin praying a little more earnestly than you have. But the big idea is that every Christian can and should Pray earnestly for the expansion of God's kingdom in the world. In his statement, Jesus acknowledges a basic truth of Christian ministry. The needs, no matter where you live, whether it's in Africa, whether it's here in Lancaster County, whether it's in Mongolia or Germany, they're great. And there are typically too few workers to minister to those who are harassed and helpless, as verse 36 says, which isn't on the screen. Jesus said they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so certainly we must pray for the Lord to send laborers, more laborers into the harvest. But once people say, here am I, Lord, send me, and head out into the harvest, whether here in Lancaster County or to the Bronx, or to Mongolia, the question arises, how should we pray for those people? And this morning, I'd like to mention four petitions, not based on Romans, on Matthew chapter 9, but based out of verses on, in Romans 10. I originally did this message uh, in my college church in Blacksburg, Virginia in the fall, and um, I reworked it a little bit so that it would fit the, the theme for this conference. The first petition is pray earnestly for the lost to realize that they are lost. Now, we often pray for the lost, but have you ever prayed that the lost would realize they are lost? Romans chapter 10, 14, Paul writes, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? It's a rhetorical question. They can't. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? They can't. 
Paul builds his argument for world evangelization in his typical logical fashion. You can't call on Jesus if you don't believe in him, and you can't believe in him if you've never heard about him. And incredibly, after 20 years of Christian ministry and witness and evangelism, there are still people in our world that have never heard the name of Jesus. And there are people in our world that have heard the name of Jesus, but they don't know who he was, they don't know what he taught, and they don't know why this innocent man was tortured and nailed to a cross 20 centuries ago. The Bible teaches that those who do not believe in Jesus Christ are lost. Spiritually speaking, they live in darkness. They're spiritually dead, cut off from the only source of life and purpose. Dallas Willard says, to be lost means to be out of place and therefore, for all practical purposes, useless. Imagine that, being useless. God has created people for a purpose, to glorify God by doing good in the world that he's created for us to inhabit. And when people are lost, they can't do that. Dresden, the city in which my wife and I live and work, is located in the former East Germany, one of the most atheistic regions in the world. It was ruled with an iron hand by godless communists for 40 long years. And about 80% of Dresden's residents, about a little over half a million, claim no religious affiliation of any kind. And in the four years that we've lived there, Mindy, well, Mindy hasn't been there for four years, a year and a half, but my wife, Anne, and I have lived there for about four and a half years, and I've had more people tell me I'm an atheist in those four years than in my 50-plus years added together combined. And so we're implementing some creative ideas to reach some of these folks. In the spring, we put on an, an event with the theme of finding purpose in life. And in preparation, we interviewed about 25, uh, we interviewed a whole bunch of people, a lot of them students at the University of Dresden. The Technical University has about 50,000 students. And we just asked one question, and a young guy in our church is good with video, he made a video, as guys that do that sort of thing. Anyway, it was good. And I'd like to show you just a brief clip to give you an idea of what that was like. You'll hear one American voice, believe it or not. I talked to a couple of American guys who are studying at the Technical University of Dresden. Let's see if it pops up here. Um, yeah, I believe the Sinn of life is to inspire other people, to a positive influence. So that's a difference whether you're part of this big world or What is the purpose of life? I think the purpose of life is to follow your heart. That's, that's what I would say. And I think the ambiguity is left for people to decide what they want to do with it. The, the German gal said that the purpose of life, in her opinion, is to make a mark on the world, to influence others as part of this big worldwide fellowship that we live in. And we invited all these folks to this event with this flyer. There's got to be more to life. There was one guy who mentioned God in his answer. He wasn't, that wasn't that guy there. But I asked him the question, he said, oh God, that's a hard question. 
but not one other person mentioned God in his or her answer. I was astounded with the number and variety of different answers. I didn't think it was actually possible to have so many. But most of our respondents assume that they have to create their own purpose in life and that they're responsible for finding their own happiness. And that's actually what's most important to them. But they fail to realize that the pursuit of happiness apart from God is a wild goose chase. It's a hopeless, lost cause. They'll never catch it. And they do not realize that they're lost. In fact, if, you would have suggest, if I would have suggested to these people that they're lost, they would have laughed in my face. Some of the respondents were just almost blasphemous. And not one of those people that we invited to that event showed up. No one asked me how I would answer the question. No one asked me what the Bible says about purpose of life. They didn't ask us any questions about our church. They're lost and they don't know it. And they won't realize it until the Holy Spirit convicts them that they are lost and need Jesus Christ as Savior. Dallas Willard poses the question, think, or the statement, imagine what it means when you've lost the keys to your house or car. Or suppose you've lost your wallet. As a matter of fact, I lost my wallet yesterday. Today. If anyone has my wallet, please bring it up. <laughs> um, I hope someone brings it up. <laughs> but imagine if you lose one of those things. They're there somewhere but they're useless to you no matter how much you need them and desire to have them and no matter what fine keys they are and no matter what kind of a cool keychain you have attached to it. As long as they're lost, you can't use them for the purpose for which they're created. And when we are lost to God, we are not where we are supposed to be in his world and for that reason we do not share in the abundant life and purpose which he has, or which he intends for each one of his creatures to enjoy and pursue. And that's why people need to realize that they're lost, because until they do, the good news that Jesus saves to many people in the world is absolutely irrelevant. Secondly, pray for God to soften hard hearts. Romans 10, even though the gospel had been preached Everywhere there were Jewish communities, not all of the Israelites accepted it. In fact, many did not. In Dresden, I saw a flyer. We have a, a synagogue in Dresden, in a prominent place in the city. And I saw a flyer advertising a lecture by a Jewish rabbi with the title or with the, under, with the theme, When Will the Messiah Return? And I can hear the disappointment in Paul's voice as he quotes the prophet Isaiah in Romans 10, 16. Who has believed our message? Few. But it's not only the Jews who are an obstinate and disobedient people. You find such people everywhere, among Jews and non-Jews alike. We must never forget that we're involved in a spiritual battle and the opposition, particularly in regions where there's less gospel presence and witness, can be intense. 
In fact, the last year and a half in Dresden has just been intense in that regard. And I wonder if it doesn't have to do with the fact that we've invaded Satan's atheistic territory and we're stirring up the waters and he doesn't like it. One of my, I've, if you've been here this week, you've heard a little bit about my friend Frank, an atheist. Well, I invited him to come to the event on purpose of life. Frank's response was, Jeff, I'm glad we're friends. But we said we want to be honest with each other, right? And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm just not interested. The guy is lost big time. But he's stubborn and he's convinced that he can manage life without God, even though he's an overweight chain smoker who drinks vodka like water. And my response, I pray. What else can I do? Some of you, I imagine, have prayed for Frank, and I hope there are one or two of you who pray regularly for Frank. And let me encourage you to connect with some of the missionaries here this week and ask them, don't pray for all the lost people. No one can do that. Well, you can say, Lord, we pray for the lost people who realize they're lost. But go up and ask for the name of perhaps one person and get some details. And then if you don't ever hear from your missionary friend, write them a message and say, how's it going with that person? Sometimes we need a little bit of a little motivation. One of our main weapons in this spiritual battle is prayer. In prayer, we wrestle with God for the souls of men and women. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul praises Epaphras. Why? Because he's always wrestling in prayer for you. I don't know if any of you have wrestled been on a wrestling team in high school or something like that, but it's strenuous work. Prayer is a great privilege. The King of Kings gives us a private audience and the opportunity to voice our concerns. He listens to us and is able in his great wisdom and power to work in all kinds of situations, to work out his purposes and bring himself great glory. And it's easy to become self-centered in prayer and to focus on our own needs. And I imagine that many of you have people who pray for you. Or if you have a concern, like Jim prayed this morning for a number of people who have problems or health issues or whatever it might be. And that's a good thing. And we all probably have people that pray for us. And if we ask them to pray, they'll pray for us. Folks, there are a lot of people in the world, they don't have anyone to pray for them. Not one person. And these people live in a world controlled by Satan, and Satan takes cruel pleasure in helping them waste and ruin their lives and then make them think they're enjoying it. In our men's breakfast yesterday, we sang one of Martin Luther's bar songs. A mighty fortress is our God, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Who will intercede for the Franks of this world? 
Who will approach the throne of grace on their behalf? Who will plead with God to soften their hard hearts? And it doesn't only have to be people who aren't believers. Jim Glasscock just mentioned how they're going to Africa and working with Christians to train pastors. Well, sometimes Christians get hard hearts too. And we need, someone to, we need people to pray that God will soften our hard hearts if that's indeed the case. And in prayer, God has given us the great privilege of influencing the world for human good and for his glory. One woman who prays regularly for us sent us a card in response to our last newsletter, and she'd written a prayer out. And we read it, and it was so encouraging. Let me share a couple of lines from her prayer. Reach the hard cases, Lord. Those who have been vocal against you and your servants need you. Soften their hearts and make them aware of their need. Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name. He might not do it today. He might not do it tomorrow. But in his good time, he will accomplish his purposes. Why? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name. You have the blank check. And I will do it. Pray earnestly, thirdly, that God's messengers will communicate graciously and serve compassionately. Paul writes in Romans 10, 14, or he asks one more rhetorical question, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? They can't. But, folks, there is so much more involved in communication than the transmission of information. Certainly the information is important. I do not want to make it sound like it's not. The information itself is highly important. But oftentimes, how that information gets communicated is just as important as the information itself. And although the message of the cross is in and of itself offensive, it says that you can't manage life on your own, that you've messed up, and that God is the only one who can put you back together again. For someone like Frank, that's an offensive message. He, well, I don't need God. There isn't a God anyway, and if there was, I don't need him. I'm just fine, thank you. Even though that message is offensive, we don't have to be offensive in the way we communicate it. The effective ambassador is not a combatant. He's a diplomat. And he will communicate, or he or she will communicate graciously and serve compassionately. Our message is Jesus Christ himself, the Word who became flesh. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. He built his tent among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Notice, it's not grace and truth. It's not grace and truth. It's grace and truth. And the challenge as a messenger of God's word is to find that balance between grace and truth, not compromising either one. Part of gracious communication has to do with 
understanding where the audience is at and tailoring the message to the audience's particular situation. Missiologists call this process contextualization. All that means is you fit the message to the people. You don't change the message, and that's very important, but sometimes people aren't at the point where they can hear certain aspects of the message until they have a certain background. And the gracious communicator, the gracious communicator is aware that people are at different stages of awareness of God, of Jesus, of sin, of, God, of the gospel. And imagine a scale from minus 10 to zero on this angle scale. Minus 10 is someone who has absolutely no God framework. We've met a ton of people in Dresden that are at minus nine and minus 10. Sometimes those who are at minus 10 don't experience the minus nine where they experience some emptiness. Zero is that point at which someone believes in Jesus, and minus 10 stands for the person who has no knowledge of God, doesn't know a single real Christian, and has never heard the good news that Jesus saves. And if he had heard it, it wouldn't make sense to him. And the effective ambassador assesses where his audience is at on this scale, and tailors his message to fit their level of understanding. The wise messenger realizes that the big decision to follow Jesus is preceded by numerous smaller decisions along the way. Like, I don't know if how many of you have gardens. You got a garden? You got some, those stepping stones in there so that your feet don't get all muddy when you go from one place to the next? That's what I think people's decision-making process is like. Now, the Jews were at minus two to minus one on that scale. And during Paul's missionary journeys, his first stop was always at the Jewish synagogue. And as a guest, he would be invited to speak, and he preached the word to the Jewish people. The Jews knew the scriptures, and they were awaiting the coming of the Messiah. The spiritual ground had already been prepared, and so Paul could quote verses out of the Old Testament, and the people knew what he was talking about. And I would imagine that they probably had heard the verses before. Perhaps they'd even memorized some of them. But in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, the Jews, for the most part, rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and so Paul turned to the Gentiles or the non-Jews. The blessings of God were never supposed to be reserved exclusively for the Jews, Rather, the Jews were supposed to be God's channel through which God's blessing would flow to the nations, to the whole world. But the Jews never understood this. And one of the challenges in missions work is that many of those with whom we work, they have no biblical background. They didn't go to vacation Bible school. They haven't gone to Sunday school. Many of them don't even own a Bible. They don't know what a Bible is. They're biblically illiterate. And I grew up in church learning that people's greatest need was to hear the gospel. And certainly that is people's greatest need, even if they don't realize it. But often it's assumed that the gospel will be preached in a context that's devoid of relationship, where the relationship does not matter. All they need is the information. We've discharged our responsibility, and then they can make a decision. But 
It's so much more than that. In order to understand the gospel, most people need both a relational role model as well as an understanding as an understanding of the issues or an adequate understanding. And I've become convinced that people have to trust me before they can hear what I have to say. And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Hearing precedes belief. The effective ambassador understands that effective communication occurs in an atmosphere of trust. So the messenger builds trust with his hearers. Well, how? By practicing what we preach. By communicating graciously, even when somebody rejects what we have to say, and by serving compassionately. For people who are at minus eight, nine, ten on this list, oftentimes serving is the way to reach their hearts. In our case, the former East Germany sits as a whole between minus eight and minus ten on that scale. There are some Christians, but the vast majority of people in our region of the world have never met a real Christian, don't know anything about the Bible, don't have any knowledge of God. And the picture on the right, in the back, you see Thomas, Thomas. Thomas owns the cooking studio where we held our Thanksgiving dinner outreach in 2016. And he came to the dinner with his wife and 15-year-old daughter. And now there are about 40, 50 of us in the room. And uh, he said to me during conversation at the table, hey, uh, this is all new to me. I'm an atheist. Really have no experience of Christianity whatsoever. Um, tell me about your church. In fact, I just learned what the difference is between a Protestant and Catholic. And I think he's about 45 years old. And he said, tell me about your church. How are you different from the Lutheran church or the Catholic church? How are you supported financially? And we began to talk. After half an hour, 45 minutes of conversation, he, he said to me, you know, I don't know much about church, but what you guys are doing here is just what people need. My wife was responsible for the food, and she does a great job. Anne um, made Thanksgiving dinner for 45 people, and he said, and when the cooking stu- the guy who owns the cooking studio says the food was good, you know it's good. And he said, wow, the food was great. Mindy's concert was super. The atmosphere is wonderful. This is just what people need today. And this is a guy who has no framework for understanding Christianity. So I would say, Thomas, through that event, moved from a minus 10. He moved slightly up the scale. And I continue to pray for him. But you can pray for folks like myself. Pray that we will communicate graciously and serve compassionately. Finally, number four, pray that God will lead and direct his messengers. Romans 10, once again, 15, and how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who bring good news. The preacher is a herald or messenger from someone who's been commissioned to communicate a message publicly and with conviction. The message is that Christ died for our sins. His death and resurrection defeated sin and death, and therefore new life in Christ is possible. And it's God's message. We're just the mouthpieces, the messengers. The messenger needs to know God's word. If you read Romans chapter 10, count the number of quotations that Paul has from the Old Testament. I'll just tell you, there are 10 spots where he quotes the Old Testament. And that tells me that Paul knew the scriptures. And the truths of scripture motivated him to travel around preaching the good news and planting churches among those who believed. Perhaps you remember the story in Acts chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Certainly churches send missionaries. And Calvary Monument has been doing this admirably for many years. Missions is one of the most important values in this church. And Anne and I have said on numerous occasions, particularly when it's hard, if it weren't for you folks and others like you who have prayed for us faithfully over the years, we probably would have returned long ago to the United States. So, on, in, on behalf of the, all the missionaries that you support and have supported over the years, let me just say thank you for that. But ultimately, it is God who sends missionaries and messengers, and it is he who directs their steps. When we moved to Dresden, we had no idea where we should live. Here we are. We just happened to rent an apartment in an area where there's no free church. We just happened to live down the street from Ernst and Brigitte, who just happened to read an article about us in the newspaper and about our new church. And they invited a woman that they'd been sharing Christ with and serving for about 10 years to a workshop that we held. And in that workshop, I was able to preach the word. And God softened Anna's heart, and Anna is in the middle of the picture there. And in August of last year, we were able to baptize her in the Elber River. Mindy led her to Christ, and I baptized her. An atheist guy who comes to our church would just say, Jeff, it's all just coincidence. And I say, Dietmar, you can believe that if you'd like but I believe in a God who is able to engineer circumstances of all kinds so that he will get great glory. And so we trust that God will lead us and direct us. Jason and Barb Henry, they're asking God for wisdom as to whether they should move to a new town in Mongolia. Pray that God would direct them and open or close the door. Pray for divine appointments 
where the messenger just happens to be in the right place at the right time. Let me quote my friend one more time. You always accomplish your plans and purposes, Lord. Hallelujah. You make a way creatively and right on time. May my missionary friends have an awareness of your miracles that refreshes their faith. The men's breakfast on Saturday, Sean Stewart told us how they needed registered nurses for their camp, for special needs camp. And it was coming down to the wire and he thought they were going to have to cancel the camp. They prayed. Just in time, God provided enough registered nurses that the camps could go on. As we were in Dresden awaiting our flight to Frankfurt to come here, we're in the airport right in front of the gate and there are all these people around and I see a woman and she approaches us and I think, I know that woman. Well, she's a single woman missionary who works just north of Dresden. And we began to talk and as it turned out, she was flying back to the United States for her father's funeral. And I thought, wow, it's too bad that she has to do that alone. And so we, Anne and Mindy and I, we gathered around Cynthia, put our arms around each other, and we prayed. But what we found out was that people had prayed that God would prepare the way and give her traveling mercies. And the first people she meets in the airport are able to pray that God would watch over her as she travels. And it was touching to watch her tears of comfort. We were God's right-on-time provision for her journey. And I should stop, I think. Zinzendorf founded Hanhut with a vision for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He offered asylum for Christians fleeing persecution. And in time, its population grew to 600. And we think, ah, that's not that big. Well, after the revival, they started a 24-hour-a-day prayer meeting that lasted uninterrupted for for 100 years. The Moravians were instrumental in John Wesley's conversion. And when Zinzendorf died in 1760, the community had sent out 226 missionaries to the ends of the earth. Let's not underestimate the power of prayer. I challenge you to pray earnestly for the lost to realize their loss, for God to soften hard hearts, for folks like myself to communicate graciously and serve compassionately, and that God will lead and direct his messengers. Thank you so much for your commitment to missions, for your commitment to our Lord. The Lord bless you. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ingram, for this message from God's Word. We've prayed earnestly this week that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. Um, We met an elderly gentleman in Kenya, and uh, he needs someone to go and tell him. Tell him that Jesus loves him that Jesus died for him, that Jesus wants to be his savior. So as we prayed for someone else to go, would you consider that you might be an answer to that prayer? That you might go to Kenya and tell this man that Jesus loves him? Will you go 
Will you go to Mongolia, to the Bronx, to Mongolia, uh, to Germany? Would you go across the street to your neighbor who needs to know about Jesus, to your friends, to your family members? They too need to know about Jesus. Because you see, when we walk out the doors of this church, we enter our mission field. If you made a commitment this week that you want to serve the Lord better, or maybe you're still wrestling with that idea, would you fill out a decision card, put it in the basket right up here, so that your elders and your pastors can pray with you about that decision? So, would you stand with me now for the benediction? I want to remind you that immediately after the service at 945 will be the uh, picture presentations for two more missionaries. <clears throat>